0: Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic Magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website www.thecritic.co.uk to subscribe today. Hello Critic listeners and welcome back to another podcast from The Critic Magazine. This week, Graham Stewart speaks to Nick Timothy on liberalism and Emeritus Professor of History Jeremy Black on the relationship between war and the state. Nick Timothy is former advisor to Theresa May and now a Daily Telegraph columnist, as well as author of Remaking One Nation, The Future of Conservatism.
1: A few years ago, it seemed we were all liberals, perhaps many of us are still liberals but the cause of liberalism in Britain and in many countries around the world seems to have taken a bit of a knock in in recent years. Um, Who better to discuss the future of liberalism than Nick Timothy, the author of Remaking One Nation, The Future of Conservatism? Uh, Nick, welcome to The Critic Podcast. I want to start by asking you whether you would accept this analysis that actually the, the, the high watermark of liberalism in, in Britain and in many Western countries is now receding fast.
2: Well, I think we're probably, at um, there's always a risk when we're talking about liberalism, that liberalism can mean absolutely anything uh, or something very specific. And I mean, I think to some extent we are all liberals in the West. If we believe in um, checks and balances on government, on uh, a free uh, an independent media, uh, an independent judiciary, and so on. Um, uh, then the sort of I call this essential liberalism in my book. We are all, um, or, or almost all, adherence to uh, to those beliefs. I think the danger is where liberalism, uh, I think, becomes more ideological. It sort of it ceases to be uh, a philosophy that uh, that recognises and values pluralism. Uh, and takes on more ideological forms. And I think it's liberalism in that sense that is starting to come under pressure. So on one hand, we have a kind of elite liberalism where you have uh, politicians from across the party divides uh, who believe in things that, to be honest, majorities of voters often don't, whether that's high immigration uh, or the marketization of public services. It can be uh, from what we think of as right and left. Um, and then there's also uh, in the book I describe um, of ultra liberalism which uh, which is um, which takes in different kinds of beliefs so on the right, you have these kinds of uh, market fundamentalists who want to uh, sort of privatize everything and think mainly of the economy and on the left, you have these kind of cultural liberals uh, who who push this uh, sort of aggressive and militant identity politics. so what tends to happen is they both ratchet liberalism uh, and individualism further further along because while they do disagree about um, what each what each side is doing uh, they quite often actually just accept uh, the policies that have been left by the other side and then pursue their own ultra-liberal agendas and so we end up with this kind of uh, uh, the, the policy consequences of that are sort of um, um, an atomized society a lot of individualism social problems economic problems and then perversely for people on the right uh, a big state that uh, that grows as it tries to fix some of those problems so I think it's liberalism at its more ideological ends that is now under pressure.
1: And this is a liberalism you would as- associate with the the government of uh, of David Cameron and Nick Clegg would you say that that resembled almost the high watermark of both uh, liberalism in terms of of globalization, uh, and also liberalism in terms of, of social attitudes. Or if you were trying to rank conservative prime ministers, let's say from Thatcher to Johnson, in order of of their of their liberalism, uh, how, how would you do that? Who would come top and who would come bottom?
2: Cool. I think that's a quite a difficult question. Um, I think. I mean, I think the the jury is out on Boris a little bit at the moment. Um, I mean, you know, he's definitely a liberal in the sense that you know, he supported things like um, uh, uh, equal marriage in the past. Uh, he was a pretty socially liberal mayor of London. He certainly talked about things like amnesties for illegal immigrants. But the interesting thing about the position he's in at the moment is he, um, uh, having backed uh, and effectively led the Leave campaign and, and then became leader of the Conservative Party and Prime Minister with the with the mission to get Brexit done, um, he obviously lost the support of some uh, remain-supporting former Conservatives in more southern and prosperous constituencies, and he had to build a new electoral coalition uh, that could give him a majority in Parliament, and he succeeded in doing that, and that electoral coalition obviously comprises uh, far more working-class and provincial voters than the Conservatives have had historically, which I think takes him away from the kind of economic liberalism that the Conservatives have pursued in the past, and uh, obviously that was behind his levelling up agenda, uh, his promises to invest in infrastructure and spend on schools and hospitals and the police, um, and I think as we come out of this crisis, and of course we do have this, this sort of, these massive fiscal consequences of, of the lockdown, uh, I think we're unlikely to see uh, a sort of second age of austerity, uh, precisely because it is unsustainable for the new conservative electoral coalition. So Boris is quite an interesting example, because I think, uh, I think in practice, we're likely to see him lead the Tory party um, away from some of its economically liberal assumptions. Um, uh, and, I, and I think, I mean, the coalition, I think, you you know, you mentioned that I think that probably is a good example of the elite liberalism I just described, where you have, um, you know, you have people like Nick Clegg, and George Osborne, and you have to ask what they actually disagree about, they both stand for this kind of elite liberal agenda. And you could almost imagine them being in a party led by Tony Blair, it sort of uh, demonstrates the way in which these views are held across the party spectrum.
1: And I mean, Margaret Thatcher, I'm simplifying her position a little bit, but essentially you would describe her as an economic liberal, but a a social conservative. So that almost suggests that that Boris Johnson is is the reverse of Margaret Thatcher. He's a a social liberal, but increasingly tempted towards uh, being an economic conservative.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's certainly right about the economics. I think the question about social liberalism is quite an interesting one because, um, uh, firstly, we have to uh, we can break it down into different sort of subjects, I suppose. But um, uh, you know, if is Boris a social liberal? Uh, if uh, he um, you know uses the opportunity of. Brexit to uh, to control immigration. Um, so we said that he, in the past he's talked about an amnesty for illegal immigrants. He's now promising uh, a new immigration system to bring uh, a different kind of control uh, to that area. So uh, so on 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 social liberalism, uh, you know, you have to consider things like that. But you also then have to look at things like uh, what does uh, support for the family mean in this day and age. Now, you know, back in the post-war period and maybe even in the 1980s, uh, under Mrs. Thatcher, um, we might have thought that support for their family had to mean things like recognizing marriage in the tax system, transferable tax allowances between spouses. Uh, These days, support for the family actually probably needs to reflect the fact that modern families come in all shapes and sizes um, and that you're not helping lots of families, lots of families with lots of, uh, you know, need for support, but also uh, with some durability, um, uh, if you're only targeting people who are already married. Um, and so and so, I think, you know, you could see that the government might be socially conservative in the sense that it is doing much more to promote stability uh, in family households, uh, but isn't necessarily doing it through... The old sense of what an uh, in inadverted commas good family looks like.
1: Where would Theresa May be on your liberometer?
2: Um, well, I mean, I, <laughs> I think having worked for Theresa for quite a long time, um, I think having uh, finished uh, my stint working for her, I'm probably as um, uh, nonplussed about, <laughs> the, about, about some of her beliefs as the rest of the country have been. Um, uh, I think she, um, she always used to say she was, uh, she sort of, she wasn't especially ideological, but she had conservative principles and sort of applied them on a kind of case by case basis. I mean, I think that the original pitch that she made to the country, uh, in the conservative leadership campaign, uh, of 2016, and then, uh, and then the first year of her premiership when I worked for her, um, I think was about trying to provide a corrective to the um, to the excesses of liberalism in the way that we 've discussed so uh, so it was much more about using the power of the state to um, uh, to to assist in the sort of uh, regional rebalancing of the economy uh, through industrial strategy and you know the state playing a much more strategic role in uh, in the economy, um, she was you know much more prepared to talk about intervening in markets where they uh, appeared dysfunctional. Uh, back then, of course, she took a more skeptical view of uh, of Chinese investment, um, which uh, she subsequently changed her mind on I think um, so so I think in that period it was uh, it was all about an attempt to um, to probably overturn some of the aspects of the liberal consensus that we're talking about um uh, but then obviously things were somewhat derailed after the election and i think she um she focused mainly on sort of managing her way through each day and week and it wasn't it wasn't an especially strategic period
1: we're now in an interesting situation caused through coronavirus which is leading to a very fundamental rethink about uh the conservative party's relationship with the state i mean the conservative party is 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 Embrace the NHS in a way which, uh, you know, seems seems almost remarkable, it's been prepared to put the entire economy into a coma in order to, to save the NHS. Um, I, I wonder to what extent the popularity that comes from doing that, and that popularity may prove ephemeral, but for the moment, the popularity of doing that will will rub off and, and make the Conservatives actually the party of of an active and interventionist state, perhaps uh, uh, along the the model of the the Singaporean People's Action Party.
2: Yeah, well, I think there's quite a lot to unpack there. I mean, I think um, I mean popularity is only ever ephemeral by definition, uh, uh, because you know, diff- you know the very nature of government is making. Difficult decisions, um, and there are going to be some pretty difficult decisions in the times ahead. Uh, I think the choice between sort of saving the NHS, as it were, and and um, and keeping the economy going in a way is less binary than it's sometimes presented. Uh, you know, I think if the if we hadn't locked down and the NHS had been overwhelmed and there had been a very um, you know a much more severe spike than than I think the economic consequences would have been if anything worse um, but I think that the so i th- i think the, de- the decision to lock down uh was the right one um, you know i think there'll, there'll be a post mortem in time when we come to consider uh, some of the right and wrong decisions that have been taken, but the decision to lock down seemed like the right one to me, but the point about politics is i think you know voters never say thank you for what you've done. They always ask what's next. Uh, and um, Boris's hero is Winston Churchill, and he's probably the most famous example of not being thanked for the second world war. And, um, and the voters asking what's next uh, with things like um, universal public services and the welfare state in mind. Um, and we know what's next. We, the thing that's next is how on earth we get the economy going again. Um, and And... As I say, I mean I think the um, the way in which ministers will try to get the economy going again will not be um, uh, anything very much like the sort of 2010-15 Parliament, where uh, the response from George Osborne was to uh, try to shrink the state and cut spending. I think they will they will pursue growth. Uh, they will try to double down on their investment plans in the regions um and and i think it's uh, apart from the fact that that is already the kind of shape of their approach i think it's quite hard for uh ministers to spend a period of crisis talking about uh you know a great collective effort and talking up the power of the state uh to then return to the politics and economics and language of individualism and liberalism so my my expectation is that uh it will be, um, there will be an economic policy that relies on the state playing a strategic role.
1: One of the criticisms that has been made of liberal conservatism Mm -hmm. is that it allows everything to be up for sale. Ultimately, the conservatives claim to be the party of institutions, but if there's a price on it, they'll sell it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I remember in in, uh, David Cameron's, during David Cameron's government, I mean, even a, a massive british company b a systems of huge defense strategic importance uh, it looked as if the the government was prepared to allow that to be to be sold as it happened it it, it fell through but there appeared to be no absolute prohibition of that happening. I sense now particularly the mu- music coming about alarm about uh, a predatory Chinese takeover of, of strategically significant British companies. I, I suggest that there is a rethink going on. Is this smoke and mirrors or actually, other than maybe a few high profile cases, is, is a totally uh, unlimited approach to globalization if there's a price on it, it's for sale? Is, is the conservatives retreating from that form of liberalism?
2: Well, I think there are probably two different things, aren't there? I mean, firstly, um, there is the question of Chinese investment in our economy, or investment from other states that we believe to be hostile to our interests and values. And it feels, it feels uh, like it's probably quite certain now that the government will change policies to um, to to probably block certain forms of Chinese investment to keep them away from elements of our critical national infrastructure um and in particular um uh chinese ownership of uh innovative technological companies um all of that i think is welcome and right and we shouldn't allow ourselves to be so exposed to one particular country um and in particular one you know one country that uh that um Uh, whose values and interests uh, are so wildly different to our own. But then I think there's a second question about um, the extent to which government says, well, there are certain uh, strategically important parts of our economy that we don't want to see uh, fall into either foreign ownership or the kind of ownership that we'll see um, asset stripping and that kind of thing. And, you know, you mentioned BAE Systems. Uh, so I mean, during the coalition years, there was also uh, a takeover bid f- from Pfizer to buy AstraZeneca, um, which the government uh, for a period looked uh, like it was uh, likely to allow to happen. Uh, and in the end, like with BAE, it didn't. But, um, you know, if you take AstraZeneca, I mean, AstraZeneca is one of the most important companies in Britain in the sense that, uh, you know, if you if you want to have an industrial strategy and you think there should be some kind of manufacturing base in Britain and a research base in Britain, um, then our pharmaceutical industry is, uh, you know, probably the most important part of that. And within the pharmaceutical industry, AstraZeneca is vitally important. So if you're prepared to let a firm like AstraZeneca be sold to a firm like Pfizer, which has a long history of buying companies for tax purposes, asset stripping, uh, and so on, um, then then you don't have an industrial strategy and, uh, and you are uh, clearly pursuing a, sort of a very hands-off uh, uh, market-based approach. Um, uh, and I think so. the question now is, yes, the government seems to be shifting uh, its policy in terms of Chinese investment, um, uh, but to what extent will it be interventionist in a much broader sense because it believes in maintaining an industrial uh, base in Britain?
1: And in that debate in in cabinet, how do you see the forces dividing?
2: Um, well, I mean, I, I mean, in a sense, I suppose it may be too early to say. I mean, before the crisis, uh, we had the um, uh, the bailout of Flybe, which is not the same as uh, as takeovers, obviously, but it, it it was an interesting example of an intervention that. I don't think we'd have seen from a Conservative government uh, before. I think that was a sign of a shift in terms of ministers' attitudes to the state and assessing the value of a company that goes beyond the immediate sort of value to shareholders and so on. Um, It was much more interested in the the social utility of the kind of uh, services that Flybe operated um, so I think that is a definite sign that there has been a shift towards intervention. Uh, I mean, you can say so too, as the, <laughs> the the policy response, the economic policy response to coronavirus with the extent of the uh, intervention there, like the furlough scheme and so on. I think that's harder to assess because, um, because it's, you know, this is a unique uh, challenge and we don't know how other governments would have responded. Um uh, but but you know I think my sense is that there is definitely a movement. Uh, we don't know the extent of the movement yet, and we will see um, the extent to which the kind of free market wing of the Tory party reacts against it, um, and whether they try to try to fight it.
1: Who would be your tip as the person who would lead that that liberal free market wing?
2: Well, I think um, it, it depends on how you're looking at it. So, so I think institutionally, the Treasury is obviously um, uh, always sceptical of these kinds of interventions. So, the Treasury itself uh, will be interesting to watch. Um, inside the inside the cabinet, I think um, you know we're, we're yet to see for sure which way different ministers are, are likely to come down. So. So um, I think, you know, sometimes uh, people characterise Rishi Sunak as uh, slightly more sort of libertarian. Uh, I disagree with that. My sense is that he, uh, uh, he has um, a somewhat traditional Tory view of the economy, but, um, but is very mindful of the levelling up agenda and has a, a strong interest as a Northern MP himself. Uh, in the rebalancing um of the economy, and I think he's quite enthusiastic about the um, uh, the the investment in the regions that has been announced so uh so I think we you know he's a he's a new ish minister, so we'll need to watch uh the way um his views evolve and the way he matures as a cabinet minister. Uh, we have Adolp Sharma in the business department, uh, who you know hasn't yet given some big speeches on how he sees industrial strategy developing, um, uh, which is kind of understandable because he has his plate rather full at the moment. Um, and so I think I think in in the cabinet, uh, you know, this is another example of of having to wait and see. I think on the backbenches, I think we can we've probably already seen Sajid Javid has started to. Um, uh, fire some warning shots uh, and and make some speeches uh, uh, and and, uh, and written articles where he's kind of made the more Thatcherite case, if you like.
1: And I wonder where Boris Johnson will be in this debate, not just in terms of his own view, but whether he will be primus inter pares and sit back, relax, let the others argue it out, or whether he will decide on his line and try and drive it
2: through cabinet? Yeah, I mean, that's another interesting question, is it, because, uh, I mean, it's not like, uh, it's not like his number 10 so far has been uh, sitting back and letting ministers decide. They've obviously been in the forefront of uh, the things the government's been doing. Um, and that's another thing to look at as we emerge from the worst of the pandemic crisis, because um, uh, I think this will probably change institutional relationships. As well as individual relationships inside government, so uh, you know, Sanchid quit as chancellor because he felt like he didn't have independence um, uh, in the treasury. Um, actually, I think what we're likely to see as as this crisis goes on, uh, and as we start to emerge from it, um, uh, certainly the treasury will become will sort of resume. I think. Um, its role as, as 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 the most important uh, department in Whitehall, and then and then you know other ministers and other departments will uh, will inevitably have to stand up more than they did before because the scale of the of the mission before them is is so is so huge.
1: Given that there is an eighty seat majority, is it your view, nevertheless, that this is an exciting opportunity? For the Conservative Party to roll back from some of the the more liberal fundamentalist positions towards what you've described as a as, as a new one nation approach. Uh,
2: well, I mean, I certainly uh, I certainly thought that at the time of the election, um, I thought Boris's leadership and the electoral coalition he was seeking gave the party that opportunity. Uh, him winning the majority was. Uh, was was obviously uh, huge. Uh, the fact that the party now represents parts of the country it never has before, uh, I think probably um, you know, suggested that the party was going to move in that kind of way. Um, I think the party probably is going to be more interested in active government than it has been, and coronavirus probably makes that uh, even more applicable um I guess the thing is the question is whether you all try whether whether as as we come out of the worst of the this crisis whether we see the task as um as creating something really exciting uh uh for the country's future or whether it's about uh trying to rebuild something that has been burned to the ground um and it might be it, it might be the case that that ministers end up feeling like Um, the job is difficult enough, they've got to restore things uh, to the condition they were before, uh, rather than trying to build something new. But I think, you know, I think a lot of people in, you know, talking to ministers and advisors over the last couple of months, uh, I think quite a lot of people in government are mindful that while this is difficult, while there's a lot of pain and suffering, uh, there is always opportunity in a crisis because it means that uh, you can take measures that you wouldn't ordinarily be able to take. Um, and you can, uh, you can build uh, in ways that you might not have been able to before. Uh, and they, they do seem to be determined to, um, uh, to stick to the kind of ambitions that they set for themselves uh, in the election campaign in December.
1: Well, we'll see if they stay true to that course or whether coronavirus blows them in a, a, in a different direction. Dick Timothy, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Huge events, be it a virus sweeping the world as a pandemic or major wars, have tremendous effects on all aspects of society, politics, economy and the role of the state. Charles Tilley, the American sociologist, famously said, war made the state and the state made war. Uh, Professor Jeremy Black, is that an oversimplification?
3: Well, it's, yes, it's definitely an oversimplification because many things made the state. Um, but nevertheless, it captures the extent to which it's foolish to think of human history without seeing war as a major aspect of the development of states and societies and also affected by that uh, development. Uh, But the notion that other uh, aspects, for example, changes in economic technology um, were not important or indeed, I mean, since we're sitting in a, well, what, what isn't a pandemic at all by the scale of something like the Black Death. But if you're thinking of major, really important episodes in the past of that type, they also clearly have had formative consequences.
1: And does it depend what period you take it from? I mean, if if we look at the 20th century with the, uh, and the use of war, then would we have a different view if we looked at it during the 18th century?
3: I think that's a really interesting question. I mean, I think that possibly... Um, you know the idea, the modern idea, of course, is that you get the uh, age of total war in the twentieth uh, century, and that you didn't get total war onwards, but prior to that, and that you know there's this sort of developmental model towards a supposed modernity. I think that's deeply flawed. I mean, the practicality is, um, you know, Athens at the end of the Peloponnesian War, or the or Tamburlaine, and those who suffered his attacks were every bit as much affected by total war. Um, as anything in the modern age and I think there is this thing which you get more generally which is the sort of the fantasy of so many military historians that you've got a sort of series of revolutions taking you towards a new stage in the present and then on into the future when in practice a lot of the elements of conflict particularly civil conflict and civil conflict is often one of the major types of conflict are relatively uh, or change in a very different fashion um and so i think one's got to be very very careful on that and also you know if you take let's say you take the 20th century Uh, I mean, if you take Latin America, there have been singularly few state to state wars or conflicts since 1935, when the Gran Chaco War between Paraguay and Bolivia ended. And yet it would be foolish to say that, you know, the state, those states and societies have not altered. So, no, I think, um, I mean, Charles Tilly was, you know, a sociologist. He was making grand gestures. And a lot of these grand gestures um, sort of are rewarded by often very lazy for example reviewers in you know newspapers who want something simple to tick off and publishers like grand titles and simple theses but the nature of human society is that it is inherently complex and in a way uh, precisely because there are more human beings than any, ever before more of them are literate and we have more independent states um since the last 50 years than we had in the previous 50 years, um, you would expect a greater degree of complexity in the present. And those people that have tried to use aspects of modernisation theory to say what they are referring to is modernity, and that's what you need to analyse, and you know, war plays a certain role on, in it, I think one has to be very cautious about that.
1: So let's try and unpick some of the aspects in which there is a relationship between war and a state and also get a sense of uh, a chicken and egg in this uh, the role of credit uh, you know, the simple ability of states to be able to fund uh, big military operations, should we see the development of financial services in certain countries as, as making them either keener to wage war on a large scale or just more able to or actually with, with these functions of credit did they, did they come from war itself?
3: Well, borrowing was certainly an important aspect of one's ability to fight, Um, but it wasn't the only one, and you can, of course, have, I mean, you were thinking about total war at the outset, you can, in fact, have systems of warfare based on predation, raiding, um, which are quite fit for purpose, um, and which, of course, can be devastating. And you know, there is an argument that there was that aspect in in modern warfare. I mean there is an you know, there's an argument that if you're looking at the Third Reich, despite all its supposed modernity, in many senses, it was an old fashioned loot and steel military system. Um uh so, I think one has to be quite careful again at looking at that. I mean, what I would say is this that if given that society in the twentieth century is more urbanized and industrialized than society, let us say at the beginning of the nineteenth century, then clearly the impact of um a state in wartime. Will have a more intensive effect in those urban and industrial contexts, and that I think is definitely the case. Um, so I mean, you know, I, I was looking at a quote from John Monash, the Australian commander, who visited uh, London in 1916, and he he wrote to his his wife, um, you know, at night the whole of London is in absolute darkness, and he underlined that because that was so striking, that was an example of, as it were, modern life and what he's referring to is the fear of zeppelins, Um, all games and museums are closed, nothing but war work everywhere, everything is at famine prices, nothing is going on in the ships, in the streets, anywhere that has not a direct bearing on the war, martial law everywhere no private motors allowed no functions, no racing nothing I had read conveyed to me any idea of how the war had taken hold of the whole British nation, and how every man, woman, and child was bent on one sole purpose, to prosecute the war in every form of activity. Well, I mean, it, that certainly made a very abrupt um, impact on, on Monash, and I think it's fair to say that that degree of mobilization of a uh, modern urban industrialized uh, society was very notable and we see the same thing obviously in World War Two. but you know if you're going forward I mean Britain and the United States have fought uh, expeditionary wars whatever term you want to call them um, in places such as variously such as Iraq, Afghanistan prior to that in the case of the Americans, places like Somalia without anybody having anywhere near that degree of Mobilization, but for the other side, I mean, if you go back to the Americans in Vietnam, uh, Vietnam becomes the most bombed city um, sorry the most bombed country in world history, but at the same time without any comparable impact on uh, of mobilization on the American home front. So I think in part, it really depends upon what, what one's looking at. And you could argue, if you wanted to, if you wanted to be interesting, you could say that World War I and World War II were in some respects relatively primitive systems uh, geared to the particular nature of those societies and industrialized systems, where, but whereas the idea that you might be able to follow, fight a modern war without, in fact, um, conscripting everybody, and why should you want to conscript them. Most of them are physically unfit and mentally not necessarily up to handling modern weaponry. You might say that is a more modern, whatever you mean by modern in this context, system of war.
1: And I wonder how um, unusual the Second World War in particular, also the First World War, but particularly the Second World War as a citizen's war, a total war, was. If you compared it to, say, Uh, what European citizens would have experienced, what what inconveniences they would have experienced during, let us say, the War of the Spanish Succession or uh, the Napoleonic Wars, proportionately would would they be roughly similar what ways would they find the state having a larger role in their lives
3: Uh, well conscription and conscription does require let's put it this way it's eased by a very comprehensive um, census system conscription is very much a characteristic that comes in um, when you have that desire for very large numbers of troops I mean there's always a uh, interplay between those societies that are more interested in military professionalism and those that are interested in bulk. Um, so um, from that point of view, let us say French Revolutionary Wars, the, introdu- the introduction by the French of the levée en masse, which basically means male conscription, that is a very much more dramatic um, imposition, if you want to use those terms, on the citizenry than, shall we say, the enchangeable armies, which fundamentally um, were much more volunteer in their in their basis. Now, one's got to be careful about uh, comparing past and present. If you have experienced injury, and were dying of blood poisoning in 1800, Um, given the nature of medical assistance, that assistance, you were in a much worse situation than if you were injured in uh, World War II, or even more today. Um, So we should be wary of assuming that just because we use the vocabulary of war about the present day, that this necessarily makes um, modern warfare, um, or even the warfare of the World Wars, um, more extreme. I mean, you know, what, what, for example, is one assuming by total war? If it was really total, you might be assuming large-scale organised cannibalism, but that wasn't a, a, a way that was used. So one's got to be very careful as to what one means by totality, and also to assume that it's necessary. You've got to be very careful of assuming that it's necessarily more modern. And as I said, you could argue the exact opposite, and I would have argued that the Third Reich is very much a very primitive uh, system, and obviously in nature of its war-making, and also in the nature of its genocide.
1: And I, I wonder to what extent there is British exceptionalism here. Uh, you talked about the, the levee en masse, and, and the, the long tradition of conscription in, in Europe, uh, and also not just the devastation of the First and Second World Wars in Europe, you, you have the extraordinary devastation of the Thirty Years' War, uh, and you know, devastation in, 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 to greater or less extents in, in, in the wars of the 18th century and early 19th century as, as well. Um, Britain isn't invaded doesn't go in for this mass conscription although of course there are press gangs and, 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 and so on um, does, does that mean that the, the British state's relationship to British people during these periods of war it has essentially been very different to that of European states?
3: Well I think the key element was the rejection of both Cromwellian autocracy and Stuart autocracy. Each of those were associated with military rule and military ambition. Uh, they both failed and the 18th century self-image of the British was that they were not uh, obliged to fight in that fashion, or if they did fight, it was through volunteer uh, militia, uh, so that you had a small standing army that was very much seen as part of the uh, British conception. And that, of course, remained the case uh, during the long 19th century. I mean, you know, there, there are, significant differences in public culture between that of Britain and that of many European states. There's no doubt at all about that. Uh, And conscription is an important element of it. But the British are not unique in not having conscription. Of course, in 19th century America, which in many senses is another form of the British political world, or at least from its origins, there isn't conscription until it's briefly introduced in the Civil War and then immediately removed so there is a sense that the state's power over the citizenry should be uh, confined and restricted now that of course uh, is altered during both world wars Um, and as a result of which you have Defence of the Realm Acts, you have much more comprehensive intervention and I was quoting uh, Monash to to talk about that Um, uh, but that doesn't mean that that was as it were accepted as as a sort of anything other than a wartime expedient just as of course income tax or Britain going off the gold standard had both been introduced as wartime expedients during in the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars, and had then been, um, you know, reversed subsequently. I mean, what I'd say is interesting about the 20th century is that the the Defense of the Realm Act of 1914 and the Emergency Powers Defense Act of 1939, they they both brought, you know, controls and the habit of control. But the latter of the the so the the latter, the habit of control proved more insistent and lasting than had been intended. And this was particularly so after World War Two. Now, after World War One, I, I think it's fair to say that um, a liberal society was reintroduced as rapidly as pop- possible after World War Two. Uh, this was not the case. I mean, conscription continued, rationing continued, and it was very much a top-down approach to uh, political and social organisation. So you get an attempt at enforced modernisation through centralised means, which is one way of describing uh, the uh, social and political policies of the Labour governments of 1945 to 51, and in some respect. That is a classic example of trying to take wartime powers into peacetime. Now, what's interesting is that, um, obviously, some people were prepared to accept that. I mean, Attlee gets re-elected the first time round. But there was also widespread um, sort of attempts at evasion and avoidance from you know, industrial disputes, and of course the, the Labour government had to send troops into the docks to deal with that, to the fact that for a lot of people um, they didn't like rationing and the black market rested essentially on the strength of an informal economy in which a large number of people felt that it was appropriate to evade what they thought of as unfair and unreasonable regulations of the state. And in any society, whoever is the government, you have to be very careful careful and cautious about uh, making illegal what people regard as reasonable. Um, I mean, it's, it's my sort of drive speed driving uh, test, and I don't <laughs> drive incidentally, but um, if you ask most people, uh, do they defy the law? Most of them will tell you that they don't. And if you say to them, "Well, does this mean that you never speed?" then most of them will say, "Well, of course i speed you know i 'll drive at thirty in a twenty mile an hour speed limit because i know I know the roads and it 's perfectly safe when i 'm doing it." Um, and they will make it quite clear, though, that they wouldn't drive the vast majority of them at 50 or 60 on those roads. So in other words, they have internalized what they think of as a a fair set of regulations. Now, the problem is when government tries to push that too far, and I think it's fair to say that in wartime there was an understanding of this, not least because there was a sense that A large part of the male population were risking their lives, therefore having uh, restrictions on the home front was acceptable and necessary, and not least because the Germans were trying to bomb the shit out of the British, so in a sense that this also seemed acceptable and necessary, but this was not the same after 1945 and I think it's fair to say that disillusionment with Labour and Labour's policies of regulation uh, sort of uh, increased during that period, and And it's one of the reasons why I think a lot of the sort of Subsequent uh, um, sort of uh, you you know uh, eulogization of Attlee is is really very misleading. It,
1: it's understandable, therefore, that uh, you know the public will put up with restrictions and controls when there is a common purpose, such as a war, and therefore understandable also that d- during the times of, of peace in the second half of the nineteen forties, uh, some of the the war socialism would become less would become less appealing. But 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 which of the aspects, uh, uh, Professor Black, would you say of war socialism that lasted well beyond 1945 actually lasted because they enjoyed considerable popular support?
3: Well I mean I think the social policies that led to uh, changes in national insurance and in health provision were the ones that were to last Um, but I think and I think they were popular I think one's got to be careful here as we know the nature of British elections and British politics we are not a plebiscitary state which is one of the things that caused upset when there was a series of referenda from the 1970s onwards whether we should or shouldn't be whether it's a a direct democracy is or isn't a good idea we can discuss on another occasion but so but what i mean is you've got to be very careful as a historian to assume uh, or presume as to what at any one moment people found acceptable or unacceptable so let's take conscription um you know most conscripts served um, there was you know relatively little in the terms of draft avoidance, not that it was, would have been easy uh, in the nature of that state and with family example behind the front of them but we don 't necessarily believe that that meant there was widespread enthusiasm for many of the tasks which british government 's first labor and then conservative um uh, you know sort of sought to foster with a a large-scale armed forces. And we've got to be very careful at judging that or assuming that. And also there's a big difference between what might be a grudging consent what might be enthusiasm, what might be an attempt to avoid things, you know, doctor, I've got flat feet kind of thing, and what might be a more active uh, attempt to uh, to evade um, responsibility. So all of these, we've got to be very careful as historians. And the idea of having a black and white, um, yes, people were enthusiastic about that. No, they weren't enthusiastic about the other. We've got to be careful about. Same with rationing. I mean, it's quite... Quite clear that um, there was, um, uh, you know, an acceptance that rationing is something you had to put up with. It's also quite clear a lot of people didn't like it and relished any opportunity, whether growing things themselves, gathering things, uh, having pilfering stuff, whatever, to to to, as it were, uh, exceed the ration. Um, So we've got to be very, very, very careful. Uh, It does seem to be the case that the enthusiasm in the 1950s, in which people embraced a culture in which material goods were very much to the fore, um white goods washing machines and such like the motor car um were was, was um, advertisements on on the new ITV uh, stations i think that's very interesting as a comment on the uh, 1940s as is the fact that you know conservative governments were elected with very substantial majorities despite the, shall we say, lackluster, to put it bluntly or mildly, um, uh, policies of of Eden and the extent to which you know, Macmillan in some respects was a vacuous windbag, but nevertheless, these they, they seemed much more attractive and the notion of we're going to deal with the problems, we are going to give you uh, material goods, we don't want the state simply to regulate uh, was very, very attractive. And, you know, if you want to wind forward to the present day, it is very, very difficult, I would have thought, for anybody, management consultants, politicians politicians, civil servants to work out what will be the cross currents of the public mode coming and mood coming out of as one hopes we will do uh, a long period of lockdown whenever that occurs Uh, because there will be some people who will regard the lockdown as a necessary response to a uh, high death rate and uh, pressures on the National Health Service and other people will regard it as a ludicrous imposition on them when they didn't feel that maybe because they were young or whatever that they were in any particular risk but in the meantime their jobs are being wrecked or their chance of being treated for cancer or just toothache are going so both of those will probably play a role and the danger will be if you're some future historian is it's all too easy and i'm afraid to say there are many people that don't write very good history um, it is all too easy to focus on one rather than the other and the particular killer problem here since we are talking about historical method is the notion of the zeitgeist the spirit of the age the idea is that people in some way think in a certain fashion and one has to be very careful about that now a lot of people a lot of Commentators, a lot of politicians will claim to identify, reflect, and express the zeitgeist. And of course, there's also good commercial advantages if you're in the business world or the political world to do so. But the practicality in any sophisticated society is that there are a variety of moods and views and habits coexisting, often not coexisting terribly easily, and that uh, each one tries to shape the general situation so as to present themselves as the norm. uh, But we have to be very wary of assuming that that's the case.
1: So as ever cause and effect are among the most troublesome problems for historians to face. We'll have to leave it there. Uh, Professor Jeremy Black, as ever, a pleasure to talk to you.
3: Thank you.
0: If you've enjoyed listening to The Critic podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.